Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 105th episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hey, Jill. What's up? Oh, not much. <laughs> this kind was... of interviewed someone fancy. Oh, my God. This was so much fun. We interviewed George Saunders, mm-hmm. um, author of Lincoln and the Bardot, mm-hmm. one of Time's 100 most influential people in the world. Yep. Uh all oh, he's, all the when they listen to the intro, they'll get yeah. all the awards and he has all yeah accolades. he has all these fan every he's so many fancy things. Um, we literally just got done like we just got done interviewing him. Yes, and I said I was like we should do the intro now. Yes, while it's still fresh in our mind. I, one of my favorite things is when we do these interviews, and it's a person who has just a way better. Like their brain works in a completely different way than mine does. I know. And just like <laughs> hearing the way he describes some things, even there's a part where he talks about he did this interview. He was in a hotel lobby, mm-hmm. and he talks about like the people in the hotel lobby and just the way he describes every with everything around him, and he's doing it in real time. Yep, it's so fascinating. Um, Agree, man. Uh, if you're not familiar, he. His new book, Lincoln in the Bardo, debuted at number one on the New York Times bestsellers list. The audiobook has gotten all the attention in the world. It has like 160 people, most of whom are famous. Yep. Uh, it's becoming a movie. Yep. Uh, so th- I don't think you need this this intro <laughs> to explain who George Saunders is if you are listening to our podcast. Yeah. But, um, what were your thoughts, Jill, since I'm rambling? he, I could have listened to him talk for just hours yes. and hours about any topic whatsoever i was so aware when we do these recordings we can see how much time we're spending talking to these people correct i was very aware of how much time we were taking up of his because he's traveling today and all sorts of stuff but i could have kept him on the phone literally for hours i know um, uh, yeah yeah just his outlook on things and he starts off by telling us that he came up with this idea like 20 years ago. And the part that I almost started laughing about was he didn't feel he was good enough to write a, a novel. Like one of the literary voices of our time didn't think he was good enough to write a novel. It's just kind of cracked, that cracked me up. That's sort of the idea of books taking 20 years or sort of ruminating for 20 years is always fascinating to me. And I think it's always like a good reminder as a writer mm-hmm. that even if you have an idea and it's just not working right now. Right stick with it just like keep it there yeah Yeah. i especially in like not to do all old man in today's society but (laughs) a lot of people want things to happen instantly yeah nowadays and it's one thing to you know he had an idea and he actively was like i can't write about this yet like that's that's an impression that in and of itself is impressive that i think a lot of people today will have an idea and they'll be like i need to get this out on the page immediately in case someone else gets it out right so yeah taking 20 years to process and create a wonderful story it was really really awesome to get to hear his thoughts oh, on it so uh Agreed. yeah i we don't want to take up too much of your time we want you to get to the interview but if people want to get a hold of us how can they do that 
They can find us on Twitter at ProBookNerds and email us directly at ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. Yes, they, you nailed it. Good job. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, we really, like I said, I think you'll really enjoy this interview. It was an absolute blast for the two of us. Uh, we kept looking at each other like just mouths agape, <laughs> like, oh, my God, this is so great. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think you guys will really enjoy it and I'm not going to keep any longer. Uh, anything else? No, I think that's it. All right. I hope you guys enjoy this interview with George Saunders on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Adam and Jill from Team Overdrive. And today we're joined by George Saunders, who is a best-selling author who is well-known around the world for his incredible work, which has led to him receiving fellowships from the Landon Foundation, the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and the Guggenheim Foundation, as well as the MacArthur Fellowship. He's been named a finalist for the National Book Award with 10th of December, as well as one of Time's 100 Most Influential People in the World. His first full-length novel, Lincoln in the Bardot, tells the story of Abraham Lincoln dealing with the loss of his son Willie and Willie's experiences with the ghosts in the Bardot, a transitional zone for those who have passed. It debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and, is, and he's been gracious enough to spend just a little bit of time with us today. So, George, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Lincoln and the Bardot is unlike anything I have ever read before, and I know you've shared where the idea originally came from, but for our listeners who may not have heard that story, how did you decide to not only tell the story, but to have it be your first novel? Yeah, well, so it was just one of those things you, you know, you kind of overhear, and you're, as a writer, your ears kind of perk up a little bit. So this is way back 20 years ago. Um, a, a friend, a family friend just told us that Lincoln, you know, his son had died, and that Lincoln had been so grief-stricken that he'd actually gone into the crypt at some point to, you know, to see the body or hold it or something. And that just really, you know, lit my brain up, like, what a, 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 a physical image, you know, of Lincoln, kind of like in the Lincoln Memorial, but with his son across his lap, you know, and just as a kind of a weird historical thing that, you know, it was hard to hard to imagine that it happened, but once it got in your head, it was hard to imagine that it didn't happen. So I didn't, you know, at the time, it just felt like a kind of, um, well, to be honest, I didn't feel like I had the chops to do it at that point. I was, uh, I think I'd written one book at that point, and it just seemed hard, you know, it seemed like it was a little more earnest than I, than I could do at that point, and um also, like, I never was a big fan of historical fiction, so it, it felt like a great idea for somebody else, really. <laughs> and uh, so I just, you know, kind of shrugged <laughs> it off. And then um, it just kept coming back over those 20 years. It just, whenever I would feel, like, artistically happy, especially, this, this story the book would kind of come out of the shadows and just go, how about now? What do you think, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it was kind of, a, I mean, in a sense, it was kind of a... a the lesson was if you if a, an idea presents, just treat it very rudely. You know, I kind of and if it if it keeps coming back, then it might actually have something to say to you. So anyway, finally in 2012, I thought, you know, this thing's been on my mind for 20 years, and I've got a little break here before this book comes out, and and let me just um, almost go back to the you know the way it was when I first started writing, which is where you know you have no idea how to do a thing, and you just agree to spend some time messing with it, and almost like you're kind of out in the yard watering, you know, just to see if anything will start growing. And with this one, it did pretty quickly. It, it, it started, you know, producing. Uh, and the other thing that was really promising was it, it started making big problems. Like there were suddenly these big obstructions in, in technical 
problems. And that's always, in my experience, a good thing. You know, if the book starts pushing back at you uh, and kind of define your, your simple plan, that's usually uh, a good sign that it has something to tell you. And I love the idea of, of you saying, you know, for a while there, you weren't really a big fan of historical fiction because you split this book up between, you know, half the, half the time is kind of spent with these ghosts and, and Willie Lincoln and the Bardot, and then the other half are these historical accounts of Lincoln during this time, and you have all these depictions that show the nature of people uh, kind of offering up different types of information as they look back at, at Lincoln, you know, during this very difficult time. So, you know, some people say that, you know, he's, you know, stoic and brave, and other people call him a coward, and that he's ugly, and all these different things. So at what point did you decide to use all of these accounts to kind of shape the idea that history can really be misleading and unclear? Well, you know, a lot, for me, the writing process is almost always kind of a line-by-line struggle. Yeah, you're, um, I find that for me, it's best to not think too theoretically or have a big plan, just kind of wade in and see what you need. So in this case, it was, I kind of hit on the idea of these, uh, these sort of Greek chords of ghosts to narrate the book, right? That was sort of exciting to me. And, um, then I was doing that for a while, and it seemed like, uh, as I imagined where my reader would be, she would start to maybe feel a little bit, um, I don't know, like there was so much whimsicality in it and so much writerly discretion. I mean, I could do whatever I wanted with a ghost. A ghost is kind of like a dream sequence in a way. You know, you, you can just, uh, there's 360 degrees of possibility. Mm-hmm. So at some point, I started to feel like my imaginary reader might be a little hungry for some historical grounding, basically. And <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, that was one of those problems, you know, where you're like, well, yeah, I know you need that, but I have no idea how to get that. <laughs> and at some point, you know, struggling with it, I just thought, well, I said to myself, how did, how do you know all this history? You know, because I've done quite a bit of reading over the years. And I thought, well, I just read those books. And so I had this kind of flash, like, all right, then why don't you just, uh, you know, put those things that you read directly into your own text? In other words, instead of trying to paraphrase them or sort of cleverly rework them, just be honest and drop them in there, you know. And then immediately um, I kind of thought of the idea of sampling, you know, music that you can just take verbatim things from other works and, <laughs> and just rework them in a way. So that was one of those artistic solutions that felt a little bit naughty, you know, like, can you do that? <laughs> so that, yeah, and then you're like, well, it's my book, I definitely can do what I like. So, so that was the first, the first wave. And then once you, you know, sort of give yourself permission to put the true things in there, then your kind of fiction writer mind starts going, hey, could we make some up, you know, as needed? And for me, the, the kind of rule of thumb was I, I, if, I, um, if I could tell a better story by simulating historical fragments, and if those historical fragments weren't wildly off the mark, you know, if I wasn't just making them up uh, to increase the drama, then I was going to allow myself to do it. So, so this weird form took shape kind of through a series of emergency decisions, basically. <laughs> I said to Adam when we started, we started listening to the audiobook at the same time, mm-hmm. and I said, "Are these real? Like, are, <laughs> are these yeah, samples yeah. real, or, or is it a mix? Like, so see, look at that." <laughs> well, the, fu- the funny thing was that there was a there was a draft where I had 
you know, the uh, the made up ones were really, really fancy. You know, they were really <laughs> the funniest and the best and the best writing and the most, and they just stuck out. And you, know, you could tell they were they were made up. So part of the um, like the ultimate writing task was to take those things and and fight, get them to quiet down a little bit so that they did uh, mix in pretty seamlessly with the other. So if somebody says that they can't tell the difference, that makes me really happy that they're you know that my uh, my little made up things sort of figured out how to blend in with the real ones. <laughs> Um, I mean, speaking of that, like the amount of research that you must have done is seems overwhelming. Yeah. Do you have any idea how many books you would have read to uncover all of the the real samples? Well, I'm not sure. I have about 200 in my office, and then I, you know, whenever I went into a bookstore or library, I kind of grabbed it that <laughs> section. And it was a lot of reading, but it was first of all really so much fun. It was mm-hmm. it's actually the hardest thing is getting unaddicted from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that curiosity about that little tiny period in 1862, kind of wean yourself from that is hard. Um, and I think also, you know, it was it was a lot, but it was kind of very, very directed. Like, I kind of knew that I needed to know more about that party scene at the beginning, and I knew I needed to know more about, uh, you know, certain battles and stuff. So it wasn't like, it, it, you know, necessarily reading, you know, entire books, I would go in and find things. And then sometimes also, you know, you'd... Um, get to a point in the book and you'd say, oh, I really need to know something about X. So then you go out on a hunt to find those things. So it was, it was a lot, um, but just completely pleasurable. And, and uh, I, you know, I look up at all those books in my office, oh my God, I, this has been going on a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so given the amount that you have read about Abraham Lincoln, you might be kind of the definitive person to sort of answer this question. Um, when it comes to Abraham Lincoln, what do you think it is about him as a historical character that you know makes him still so popular even today? I mean, there's obviously been other famous presidents, and there's been other presidents who were assassinated, and other presidents who have achieved seemingly you know, impossible feats, but he seems to be a character that our society is still really fascinated with. Do you have any thoughts on why that might be? Yeah, I, th- I do. I mean, I think part of it was just that the the, uh, the way his life played out was so dramatic, you know, especially in those last five years. I mean, uh, you know, to have, have shown up just when he did and have been sort of strangely suited for that moment, you know, but also to have to, he had to grow into that moment. And then he, uh, and, it, and several times it looks like the war is going to be lost and or he's going to not going to be reelected. Uh, he, he's, you know, the war expands to be not only about union but about slavery and all this. And, and then right when he wins, he gets killed, you know, on Good Friday. It's just so, so incredibly dramatic. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it's almost like just as the nation was realizing it had this great man among, among it, uh, he's taken away, you know, by this crazy guy. So that, that's part of just the drama, I think, is part of it. But then also within that, I think we love him because um, he, he really was, um, you know, when you look at what the Constitution says, it's an amazing document. It's an amazingly uh, almost religious document in what it says we should do. Well, we never have done it. You know, I mean, even when it was written, we weren't doing it. Uh, he seemed to have been a guy like a shark in the water with blood. He just knew how to guide us to that uh, that that sort of true Americanness, and he did it. I think a little bit in spite of himself. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't born understanding that, especially about race. You know, he was kind of a typical racist guy when he was younger. Not, not I think aggressively racist, mm-hmm. but he accepted the ambient racism. He accepted that slavery would exist and all that. So I think what we love about him is that he uh, somehow got the scent of a certain kind of righteousness, and he was such an honest guy. And 
American, that he did it very pragmatically. You know, he wasn't, uh, there were people in his time who were way ahead of him on race and on slavery. But he knew that they were being sort of dismissed as crazy people. So he kind of tucked in underneath the culture. You know, he's always a couple steps behind the culture until he would run ahead and, and, and lead it. You know, so I think all those combinations are very American. And then it might also just be the simple fact that we don't know that much about him. You know, I mean, I read so much about him, but the accounts are, are strangely um, outside of Lincoln. You know, they can describe that he was at this place and he said such and such and he looked this way, but you'll find very few accounts of him you know, sort of being at all confessional about his feelings or his motivations or even his ideals. It's all very kind of behind a, a curtain. So that means that I think it's easy to project onto him. You know, you <laughs> see all kinds of, every political group claims Lincoln and every religious group claims Lincoln. Uh, so I, th- I think it's a combination of all those things. But he's really hard to, to leave behind once you, you know, once you get to know him a little bit, you just want to read about him all the time, all day, all night. <laughs> So as you mentioned, half the time is spent with these historical counts, but the other half is spent with Willie Lincoln in the Bardot with three main characters. They sort of serve as de facto narrators during these scenes, but the the point of view passes from ghost to ghost and then to lesser characters as well. What went into the decision process of deciding to pass the narration from these characters like between them so seamlessly? You know, I can't really answer that honestly because I don't remember. It, it's it's a lot of for me. A lot of the writing process is so intuitive, and it happens through um, like a sort of split second decisions that almost like when you're in the optometrist and it says, "Is this better or is this better?" So a lot of that, and then also I do a lot of iteration. Like I re- rewrite a lot, so I'll just go through and go through and, and always sort of micro tweaking as I as I go. So. It, you'll look up and you'll have made a decision like that without even realizing that you did it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so in other words, you're writing the, the Reverend scene and you just want to make him a bit of, more of a narrator. And so he, you give him the opportunity to narrate Reverend's next line. You do it without thinking about it. And then when you go through it the next time and the next 80 times, it seems, it feels right to you. So you let it stand. And that that's a really, you know, in terms of, process it's kind of a hard thing to talk about because it seems so silly in a way or kind mm-hmm. of insubstantial but my theory is that you um basically by making those micro decisions over and over again and even you know so in other words in that model even when you see something and go yeah good enough that's also writing you know mm-hmm. by doing that many hundreds maybe even thousands of times you basically imprint your deepest self onto the, the story in ways that you never could if if you were just going to make a decision and implement it, you know? So it's kind of an article of faith with me that this is how writing works. And, and, you know, the more you're in a position of talking about it, the more rickety it feels. But I know that's actually the truth for me. You know, almost like if you said to somebody, you know, how do you hit a baseball, a really good baseball player? He, he could tell you, he could say some things, but the truth is the difference between a, you know, a 350 hitter and a 200 hitter is not, not the jargon. You know, right. it's the execution. Yeah. So I think that's for me, it's it's kind of, you know, truth answer would be, I don't know. Like it kind of, <laughs> <laughs> that's what it for four years and that evolved and mm-hmm. I let it stand. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, all right, so we need to talk for a few minutes about the audiobook because, you know, like we both said, we both were listening to it at the same time, and we're not breaking news when we say that it's unlike anything we've ever listened to. There's loads of articles about the fact that there's, you know, like 160 different people that are involved in the process, and I've seen that the original idea to have a different actor for each character is something that you were kicking around with your producer, but 
I, I just have to know, did you ever imagine having something so massively, you know, huge with all of these famous people? Did you ever imagine the project could possibly play out like that? Well, you know, it's, it's funny because the correct, the modest answer, oh, no, I never did. And in a way, it's true. I mean, it was very surprising. But also, I think part of, part of um, the artistic life is that you kind of do dream big like that. You know, you kind of do think, wouldn't it be cool if... Uh, and then there's a certain way, and this might be a little new agey, but I think if you imagine your work getting that kind of attention and respect, it's more likely to get it. You know, in other words, if I had, if I, when I was writing the book, I, I was always excited by the thought of like, well, wouldn't be, wouldn't actors have fun with this? You mm-hmm. know? Uh, so in a certain way, I don't, I think I, I, I would never have said that I, you know, expected that level of response. But in a way, you kind of hope for it. You know, you kind of aspirationally. You're trying to have the biggest vision of what you're doing, uh, and in a way that that sort of I think that lays down tracks for things to actually happen. You know, so in other words, if I'm thinking uh, at some level in my head, you know, wouldn't it be great to hear great actors deliver these lines? Then maybe there's a way that you, the writer within you, arranges himself to be a little more ambitious. You know, and to try to do to make it make it better. Um, so, so that said, I mean, it was quite a shock when we <laughs> when we actually listened to Elizabeth <laughs> Kelly and I would kind of email back and forth and just sometimes it was just a split the names like what how, how, you know it's so generous because I mean, nobody nobody was adequately compensated uh, and, and uh, so it just became this kind of beautiful um, active kind of let's you know let's put on a show like kind of communal art thing that was really really gratifying. I've seen you say it was sort of like an ultimate fanboy experience to have all of these people read your words. Did you get to be a part of the recording sessions in any way? I feel like it would be kind of intimidating to try and give some big actor notes on how to read a certain yeah, line. No, I, <laughs> no, we did actually it was well. That was one of the one of the hidden uh, technical accomplishments of this thing is that the there were never two actors in the room at the same time. So when you hear me and Nick and David. You know, talking. We we uh, we weren't in the same cities even. Wow. So Kelly would go in and record. I, I went into LA and recorded all the reverence bits, and then David was somewhere else recording his bit, and Nick was somewhere else a different day. And so they so the, so Kelly and her editor just you know basically spliced them in together. So what Kelly was doing that was really amazing throughout was kind of having a good enough sense of the conversational flow that she could direct you on the spot to change a line in response either to a line that had been recorded or was yet to be recorded you know so yeah so so i didn't i didn't have any notes yep, my only real participation was to go oh my god that's great <laughs> I can't you got that I can't believe you got that person and then afterwards she would sometimes you know write me and just say you know you, i'm sitting here in tears because don chio just walked out of the studio and did the most amazing thing or you know uh you're, you're never going to believe what ben stiller pulled off you know so so it was kind of just getting reports you know ecstatic reports after the fact really. i'm blown away at the idea of like the herculean effort of editing that right? all individually me too oh my god i don't know how many and it was put together you know i think it was um the whole thing was done in about three months you know four what? months and that was kelly and her, and her editor oh and god. uh so yeah it was incredible it was yeah. and it was it was you know i, I love the idea of um Especially, you know, later in your career, like I am now, you, the idea of keeping things fresh, doing it just for the creative fun of it, uh, especially since I'm a total control freak in my writing, <laughs> to relinquish control a little bit on something like this and say, yeah, we, well, we don't know how it's going to sound until we do it. And by the time we do it, uh, it's done. You know? yeah. uh, so then you're going you, to get 
be the beneficiary of a lot of happy accidents, things mm-hmm. that came off much better than you could have imagined. And But it's all about being a little bit open to failure, too, to say, well, it yeah. might be crazy. You don't know. You know that, That's a, re- a refreshing thing. I mean, it's how I felt when I was 18. But sometimes if you have a lifetime of uh, creative work, you, you, you know, you're learning things. And you're getting a certain artistic certainty, but which is good, but that can also be your enemy. So it's mm-hmm. nice to strip that away every now and then and go, let's just, let's just go in the barn and start making some shit up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I have to say, uh, two of my favorite people in the whole recording are Megan Mullally and Bill Hader. And they play Eddie and Betsy. And I haven't been able to confirm this, but to me, they sound like dead ringers for like foul mouth versions of Uncle Lewis and Aunt Bethany from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And I just, I love that. And I, I'm not asking. I might have channeled that through, but yeah. <laughs> so I'm not asking you to pick any favorites, but do you have any portrayals of the audiobook narration that really stood out to you of something that you really loved? Well, there, I mean, they're just one after the other, wasn't it? I mean, there are so many mm-hmm. interesting things. I thought uh, uh, Keegan Martin Key was uh, yes. amazing in that, Elson uh, Farwell. That was a real and I thought what Ben did was really surprising and bold. Uh, kind of, he did this sort of uh, night watchman who kind of almost like whispers his part like that. Right. Uh, and then, you know, Susan Sarandon, I, <laughs> Julianne Moore is just like, I was in tears. So, I mean, I really can't. There, there are so many great, uh, I mean, the, the uh, yeah, it was, it was funny how the, we cast it pretty well, too. Like, mm-hmm. Miranda July has a part that's just right for her. And, and um, also, you know, Carrie Bronstein had a part that was very, kind of straight it's a pretty serious part and she just nailed it and, you, and she plays a, a woman who's sort of across the street watching these actions unfold and she's, in my mind that character was really important in the book someone who just was like uh, really the only outside observer of the whole thing and uh, so she, I thought she was just lovely and so it was, it was just one after the next this was really just my way of kind of letting you guilt-free name drop all the all the amazing people. Yeah, in there. yeah, no, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I, mean, I, just basically, I basically just read the capsules. And you know, the other person that I'm really grateful to is Jeff Tweedy, who who did a really long and beautiful part uh, for this uh, this dead soldier, basically. Mm-hmm. And then he also wrote the intro and the outro music. You know, and just mm-hmm. so it's just like the generosity of these people is, is unbelievable. And you, you know, it was good for me too to see. That um, I mean, I'm always looking for ways to understand art making better, so I can do it better in the future. And what I noticed from all these people who, are, who participated, um, and, and including people who weren't celebrities and weren't actors, uh, is that there's something about generosity. You know, that that feeling of doing it just because there's something in you that wants to express itself. You know, that that notion it was really um, it, it's it's for me kind of important to remember because again, as you get professionalized, you know, you sometimes think it's it's a profession, but it actually isn't. It's a, it's a dance, basically. You know, when you write something or you perform something, you're really, it's like, in its best case, it's kind of a spontaneous, joyful dance, you know. Uh, it's not a, it's not an orchestrated, engineered, you know, uh, sort of duty. So that was a good, and also Kelly reminded me of that because she just sort of, for some reason, this project really just lit her up and she, uh, you, I could almost feel it over the phone, kind of going, "All right, I'm going to make this a great thing," you know. <laughs> and if, I don't, I don't even know. I don't even know. I mean, the uh, the logistical things are huge. The financial things are, couldn't have been any considerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she just got it, you know. As they used to say, "Got a beer on it," you know, and just decided <laughs> to knock this on the other fence. So again, that was inspiring to me to see that a person can um, kind of decide at some point to make them uh, kind of a, 
a masterpiece, and she made an audiobook masterpiece, regardless of the source material, which is okay, but you know, whatever, not so so, <laughs> you know. But but the but what she did with that was a masterpiece, and she, it's because she decided to, you know, she decided to to uh, make this kind of a defining artistic moment in her life, and so that was really really wonderful to watch happen. So, um, along with Megan Mullally, her husband Nick Offerman is also one of the narrators, and. They together just acquired the movie rights to the book, which is incredible. I, I love them. Yeah. yeah. Um, this obviously yeah, like. Me too. They, <laughs> so this just happened, like it was just announced. But what was that experience like for you when you heard the news? Well, we we kind of had basically what happened was Nick had interviewed me for uh, his book Gumption, which is a really wonderful book, and so we get you know kind of became friends over that afternoon and stayed in touch, and I made a point to get together, and then I met Megan and. It was just, um, and for me, it was, I admired them both from afar with that feeling that you have, like, I know I could be friends with them, you know, <laughs> they're so cool. And uh, so then we were friends, and then we were on a trip somewhere, and they, they said they'd read the book. They'd, they'd gotten an early group and read it, and they responded so amazingly to it, you know, and they said, we, we, we'd ever think of us doing this together. I'm like, yeah, that would be amazing, you know, <laughs> mainly because I think um, my fear, my fear with this book, which I loved writing so much, the fear would just be that it would somehow get taken away from you and made into something that wasn't right, you know. Mm-hmm. With these guys, there's no danger of that. We're going to, you know, we all have the same vision of it, and uh, and I think we share that idea of it. So it's supposed to be fun, and it's supposed to be surprising, and it actually is supposed to be different from the book. It's supposed to be, uh, you know, as different from the book as the book was from what I had in my mind at the beginning, you know. I mean, that's part of the process is to surprise yourself. So, uh, it it's just feels really, really right because if I feel like if we can't do the book justice, we just won't try it. Mm-hmm. And if we can, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll have a lot of fun with it. And, and of course, with people like them, you have immediate access to all the best people. And uh, that was one of the ways that we got so many great celebrities that Nick and Megan helped us. Mm-hmm. You know? So, so I feel really happy about it. And you know, I guess your fear would always be that you would, you would, as I said, you, this book that was such an intimate part of you for so long would get taken away and that just won't happen mm-hmm. so nice um and so something that i i love in all of your stories not just in lincoln and the bordeaux is your ability to apply a bit of absurdity into them um sometimes it's overt and sometimes it's a little bit more subtle uh for bordeaux you know the descriptions of the ghosts themselves and their staunch refusal to accept you know even their fate throughout you know, like some of the verbiage that they use comes to mind I personally was raised on a lot of absurdity with like the Muppet Show and Dr. Seuss and things like that, so I can relate. Uh, is absurdity something that you look for when you are seeking out books to read? And then do you add these things to your own stories? Uh, are they kind of through things that you see in your own life? Yeah, well, I, for me, I, I think part of the reason that I read and write is that, let's see, it, it's like this. We don't really know what this world is. We think we do. And our minds are set up to make us think we do because that's Darwinian. You know, we have to survive. So I'm in a hotel lobby and I'm looking around at people who are sitting here waiting for the flights and there's a bar and there's, you know, and I can, mm-hmm. I can set the scene in a way that you, you'll see it. It's just, you know, it, that's, that's what we do. Right. But uh, behind that, there's another level of truth that we don't see as readily. Uh, I mean, some of it is existential, you know, that, that, all these people scurrying around here are going to be dead in some number of years or days, we don't know, uh, that they used to be babies, you know. <laughs> I mean, that each one of these people moving 
confidently through the lobby here as having some kind of neurotic thought stream, even as I watch them, including me. You know, <laughs> I mean, so that, but that's and that's not. I mean, it's kind of funny, but it's also totally true. Mm-hmm. You know, totally true that in 400 years this building won't be standing here. Uh, you know, all these kind of things. So, so, and then you know, if you could, if your if the, your retina was set up differently, you'd see this on a molecular level. You know, you wouldn't be able to discern curtain from wall. It would be all just molecules. So, so the fact that the world presents so clearly and confidently to us has to do with our our, our perceiving apparatus. Uh, so all all those things. So when you're writing a story, I, I think part of what you want to do in the service of truth is just poke or sort of allude to that idea a bit, that the perceived reality isn't actually correct. Uh, and the way that we move through the world as human beings is not correct, really. You know, I got up this morning, and I'm just absolutely sure I'm going to live forever, for sure. <laughs> you know, uh, that's not correct. So I think, you know, I don't really separate absurdity and realism anymore in my mind, because I think, um, in a certain sense, everything is real and everything is absurd. So when these elements show up in a story, partly it's just there to remind us of, of that truth, you know. Um, and then maybe on a more mundane level, I think a lot of times uh, a story, it, it, as you're writing it, isn't interesting enough. And so you want to add some interest to it. And sometimes the interest is 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 only to be added by what we would call a certain element. I, I'll tell you a story. I have a, we have a painting in our house by this young artist, and it's got, it's kind of like a Bacchanal scene, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and in it there's like these flying things, like there's a flying pork chop and a flying ice cream cone, and your eye kind of goes from there, it's really, really is cool. So this painter came to hang, hang this painting for us, and I said, hey, you know, can you tell me a little bit about the reason for the flying pork chops? <laughs> and I'm thinking he's going to give me some theoretical. He said, well, he said, I finished it, and it just didn't have enough energy in it, you know. <laughs> Which is a perfect, which is a perfect answer, right. and and in the the presence of those pork chops, absolutely makes that pain come alive, and you love it somehow because of that. Not only because of that, but that's part of it. So, on a functional level, that's kind of where the absurdity gets in. It isn't any kind. It's not like um, there isn't for me not a real theoretical thing, except to try to get the energy of the story up enough so that you won't be able to look away from it. Essentially. So I'm a librarian. We are a library company. We fervently believe in their importance in the community. As someone who has given countless talks and readings at library events, and I'm sure used your local library for research, <laughs> do you have any thoughts on the importance of libraries? I sure do. <laughs> um, I mean, my writing life was made by a library in Chicago. I, I had uh, never written anything, or never had read anything modern, really. I'd only read, you know, uh, like Hemingway and kind of writers of the 30s and stuff. And so I, I decided that I better, because uh, I kind of felt like, well, there's no good writing being done today. I, I thought that, you know, kept done it. So um, I decided to test that hypothesis. I went to the Chicago Public Library and set up shop there and pulled on every literary magazine they had and spent about six hours just pouring through it. And in that process, I found this story called Hot Eyes Spliced or Dybeck that was so good and had been written like four years before and it totally, you know, punctured my stupid idea about contemporary writing and <laughs> put me on the path to, to being a writer. So that's one thing. Uh, and I think it speaks to a larger thing, which is, okay, if, um, you know, at a certain point, everybody knows that information is power. And we also know that the there are cultural forces that are 
for whatever reason, uh, intent on controlling your access, one's access to information. Uh, so in a time where we, you know, information is being highly managed for us before we even realize it, especially on the internet, mm -hmm. um, and where there's a kind of a very short-term materialist idea about what good information is, uh, a library is a place where it's truly egalitarian that if, if, if um, if it exists, the library is going to have it. So if you if you can find your way to a book, uh, it's going to be there for you. It's not going to have been pre-removed by somebody or disallowed you. You know, so that means that a free a free human mind can take its curiosity and do whatever it likes, and can can overturn old theories, and it can push back on on poorly poorly wielded power, and it can do anything. So I think just when I think of the word library, I think of the word freedom. I love that. Uh, so at the end of our podcast, we have nine rapid fire questions that we call the nerd nine simply because we love alliteration. Um, so these are okay. really, these are really quick. Uh, the first one is just, what's the last book you finished? Uh, the last book I finished was, uh, let me think of it, uh, The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Nice. So good. Uh, do you have a favorite place to read? Um, not really. I mean, I, I mostly I read in bed at night, so that'd be one good place, but any, anywhere and everywhere. Uh, do you have a guilty pleasure? About to what? Do you have a guilty pleasure? Oh, um, with The Bachelor? That's probably one. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? Um, Israel. Do you have a favorite holiday? Are you a coffee person? Are you a coffee person or a tea person? Coffee. <laughs> you and me both. Uh, cats or dogs? Do you have a favorite food? Um, well, it used to be cheeseburgers, but now I became a vegetarian. So let's say uh, any kind of really spicy Thai food. Perfect. And then the last one, uh, if you could have dinner with one person, alive or dead, who would you choose? That's I'm going to go through that tonight, right now. <laughs> um, and then our last question before we let you go. Uh, what do you hope readers take away from reading Lincoln and the Bardo? Well, I, I what I really, okay, so my model of uh, an artistic thing is a roller coaster. Like, I want you to come on that book just like a little speechless, uh, a little moved, and you don't know why. You, you feel maybe, maybe a little bit enlarged in some way. And I want that feeling to sit there for a little bit and, uh, you know, like a kind of like a speechless feeling of being emotionally moved would be my, my choice. Mm -hmm. And then after that, people will, you know, then I think people uh, start, you know, analyzing and that's good. And I think in that realm, there's something to be said about, um, you know, basically just that we're all here uh, continually in some kind of suffering, even if we're happy, you know, the happiness isn't going to be permanent. And, it, and we didn't get that happiness just surely by our efforts. I mean, some of it is just luck and fate and so on. So in that, given that that's the case, it just, to me, it seems to argue that we should be, you know, at the very least, be gentler with each other because everybody's in the same boat. You know, everybody wants to be happy and everybody periodically is failing to be happy and being oppressed by the world and kicked around. So to me, that if there's anything after that initial feeling of, wah, you know, kind of, uh, <laughs> for somebody to feel a little bit gentler would be good. 
that would be fine with me, you know. But that's up to them. <laughs> Perfect. That's a fantastic place to end. George, thank you so much for joining us today. We very much appreciate it. I, I enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you so much. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.